This is Reformed Classics, audio productions of classic Reformed works. Today we're continuing our presentation of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. Book 1, Chapter 15, State in which man was created, the faculties of the soul, the image of God, free will, original righteousness. Sections 5. The dreams of the Manichees and of Servetus, as to the origin of the soul, refuted. Also of Osiander, who denies that there is any image of God in man without essential righteousness. 6. The doctrine of philosophers as to the faculties of the soul generally discordant, doubtful, and obscure. The excellence of the soul described. Only one soul in each man. A brief review of the opinion of philosophers as to the faculties of the soul. What to be thought of this opinion. 7. The division of the faculties of the soul into intellect and will, more agreeable to Christian doctrine. And 8. The power and office of the intellect and will in man before the fall. Man's free will, this freedom lost by the fall, a fact unknown to philosophers. The delusion of Pelagians and Papists, objection as to the fall of man when free, refuted. Section 5 But before I proceed further, it is necessary to advert to the dreams of the Manichees, which Servetus has attempted in our day to revive. Because it is said that God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, Genesis 2.7, they thought that the soul was a transmission of the substance of God as if some portion of the boundless divinity had passed into man. It cannot take long time to show how many gross and foul absurdities this devilish error carries in its train. For if the soul of man is a portion transmitted from the essence of God, the divine nature must not only be liable to passion and change, but also to ignorance, evil, desires, infirmity, and all kinds of vice. There is nothing more inconstant than man, contrary movements agitating and distracting his soul. He is ever and anon deluded by want of skill and overcome by the slightest temptations, while everyone feels that the soul itself is a receptacle for all kinds of pollution. All these things must be attributed to the divine nature. If we hold that the soul is of the essence of God or a secret influx of divinity, who does not shudder at a thing so monstrous, Paul, indeed, quoting from Eretus, tells us we are his offspring, Acts 17.28. Not in substance, however, but in quality, inasmuch as he has adorned us with divine endowments. Meanwhile, to lacerate the essence of the Creator, in order to assign a portion to each individual, is the height of madness. It must, therefore, be held as certain that souls, notwithstanding of their having the divine image engraven on them, are created just as angels are. Creation, however, is not a transfusion of essence, but a commencement of it out of nothing. Nor, though the Spirit is given by God, and when it quits the flesh again returns to Him, does it follow that it is a portion withdrawn from His essence. Here too, Osiander, carried away by his illusions, entangled himself in an impious error, by denying that the image of God could be in man without his essential righteousness as if God were unable, by the mighty power of his Spirit, to render us conformable to himself, unless Christ were substantially transfused into us, 
Under whatever color some attempt to gloss these delusions, they can never so blind the eyes of intelligent readers as to prevent them from discerning in them a revival of Manichaeism. But from the words of Paul when treating of the renewal of the image, 2 Corinthians 3.18, the inference is obvious that man was conformable to God not by an influx of substance, but by the grace and virtue of the Spirit. He says that by beholding the glory of Christ, we are transformed into the same image as by the Spirit of the Lord, and certainly the Spirit does not work in us so as to make us of the same substance with God. Section 6 It were vain to seek a definition of the soul from philosophers, not one of whom, with the exception of Plato, distinctly maintained its immortality. Others of the school of Socrates, indeed, lean the same way, but still without teaching distinctly a doctrine of which they were not fully persuaded. Plato, however, advanced still further and regarded the soul as an image of God. Others so attach its powers and faculties to the present life that they leave nothing external to the body. Moreover, having already shown from Scripture that the substance of the soul is incorporeal, we must now add that though it is not properly enclosed by space, it however occupies the body as a kind of habitation, not only animating all its parts and rendering the organs fit and useful for their actions, but also holding the first place in regulating the conduct. This it does not merely in regard to the offices of a terrestrial life, but also in regard to the service of God. This, though not clearly seen in our corrupt state, yet the impress of its remains is seen in our very vices. For whence have men such a thirst for glory, but from a sense of shame? And whence this sense of shame, but from a respect for what is honorable? Of this, the first principle and source of its consciousness, that they were born to cultivate righteousness, a consciousness akin to religion. But as man was undoubtedly created to meditate on the heavenly life, so it is certain that the knowledge of it was engraven on the soul. And indeed, man would want the principal use of his understanding if he were unable to discern his felicity, the perfection of which consists in being united to God. Hence, the principal action of the soul is to aspire thither, and accordingly, the more a man studies to approach to God, the more he proves himself to be endued with reason. Though there is some plausibility in the opinion of those who maintain that man was more than one soul, namely a sentient and irrational, yet as there is no soundness in their arguments, we must reject it, unless we would torment ourselves with things frivolous and useless. They tell us, see chapter 5, section 4, there is a great repugnance between organic movements and the rational part of the soul, as if reason also were not at variance with herself and her counsels sometimes conflicting with each other like hostile armies. But since this disorder results from the deprivation of nature, it is erroneous to infer that there are two souls, because the faculties do not accord so harmoniously as they ought. But I leave it to philosophers to discourse more subtly of these faculties. For the edification of the pious, a simple definition will be sufficient. I admit, indeed, that what they ingeniously teach on the subject is true, and not only pleasant, but also useful to be known, nor do I forbid any who are inclined to prosecute the study. First, I admit that there are five senses, which Plato, and Theteto, prefers calling organs, by which all objects are brought into a common sensorium, as into a kind of receptacle. Next comes the imagination, Fantasia 
which distinguishes between the objects brought into the sensorium. Next, reason, to which the general power of judgment belongs. And lastly, intellect, which contemplates with fixed and quiet look whatever reason discursively revolves. In like manner, to intellect, fancy, and reason, the three cognitive faculties of the soul correspond three appetite faculties. Will, whose office is to choose whatever reason and intellect propound. Irascibility, which seizes on what is set before it by reason and fancy. And concupiscence, which lays hold of the objects presented by sense and fancy. Though these things are true, or at least plausible, still, as I fear they are more fitted to entangle by their obscurity than to assist us, I think it best to omit them. If anyone chooses to distribute the powers of the mind in a different manner, calling one appetive, which though devoid of reason, yet obeys reason, if directed from a different quarter, and another intellectual as being by itself participant of reason, I have no great objection, nor am I disposed to quarrel with the view that there are three principles of action, sense, intellect, and appetite. But let us rather adopt a division adapted to all capacities, a thing which certainly is not to be obtained from philosophers. For they, when they would speak most plainly, divide the soul into appetite and intellect, but make both double. To the latter they sometimes give the name of contemplative, as being contented with mere knowledge and having no active powers, which circumstance makes Cicero designated by the name of intellect in genii. At other times they give it to the name of practical, because it variously moves the will by an apprehension of good or evil. Under this class is included the art of living well and justly. The former, appetite, they divide into will and concupiscence, calling it bulesis. So whenever the appetite, which they call horme, obeys the reason, but when appetite, casting off the yoke of reason, runs to intemperance, they call it pateos. Thus they always presuppose in man a reason by which he is able to guide himself aright. Section 7. From this method of teaching we are forced somewhat to dissent, for philosophers, being unacquainted with the corruption of nature, which is the punishment of revolt, erroneously confound two states of man which are very different from each other. Let us therefore hold, for the purpose of the present work, that the soul consists of two parts, the intellect and the will. Book 2, Chapter 2, Section 2 and 12 the office of the intellect being to distinguish between objects according as they seem deserving of being approved or disapproved, and the office of the will to choose and follow what the intellect declares to be good, to reject and shun what it declares to be bad. We dwell not on the subtlety of Aristotle, that the mind has no motion of itself, but that the moving power is choice, which he also terms the appetite intellect. Not to lose ourselves in superfluous questions, let it be enough to show that the intellect is to us, as it were, the guide and ruler of the soul, that the will always follows its beck and waits for its decision in matters of desire. For which reason Aristotle truly taught, that in the appetite there is a pursuit and rejection corresponding in some degree to affirmation and negation of the intellect. Moreover, it will be seen in another place, Book 2, Chapter 2, C. 12-26, through 26, how surely the intellect governs the will. Here we only wish to observe that the soul does not possess any faculty which may not be duly referred to or other of these members, 
and in this way we comprehend sense under intellect. Others distinguish thus. They say that sense inclines to pleasure in the same way as the intellect to good, that hence the appetite of sense becomes concupiscence and lust, while the affection of the intellect becomes will. For the term appetite which they prefer, I use that of will as being more common. Section 8. Therefore God has provided the soul of man with intellect, by which he might discern good from evil, just from unjust, and might know what to follow or to shun. Reason going before with her lamp, whence philosophers, in reference to her directing power, have called her ta hegemachinon. To this he has joined will, to which choice belongs. Man excelled in these noble endowments in his primitive condition, when reason, intelligence, prudence, and judgment not only sufficed for the government of his earthly life, but also enabled him to rise up to God and eternal happiness. Thereafter choice was added to direct the appetites and temper all the organic motions, the will being thus perfectly submissive to the authority of reason. In this upright state man possessed freedom of will, by which if he chose he was able to obtain eternal life. It were here unseasonable to introduce the question concerning the secret predestination of God, because we are not considering what might or might not happen, but what the nature of man truly was. Adam, therefore, might have stood if he chose, since it was only by his own will that he fell, but it was because his will was pliable in either directions, and he had not received constancy to persevere, that he so easily fell. Still, he had a free choice of good and evil, and not only so, but in the mind and will there was the highest rectitude and all the organic parts were duly framed to obedience, until man corrupted its good properties and destroyed himself. Hence the great darkness of philosophers who have looked for a complete building in a ruin and fit arrangement in disorder. The principle they set out with was that man could not be a rational animal unless he had a free choice of good and evil. They also imagined that the distinction between virtue and vice was destroyed, if man did not of his own counsel arrange his life. So far well had there been no change in man, this being unknown to them. It is not surprising that they throw everything into confusion. But those who, while they profess to be the disciples of Christ, still seek for free will in man, notwithstanding of his being lost and drowned in spiritual destruction, labor under manifold delusion, making a heterogeneous mixture of inspired doctrine and philosophical opinions, and so erring as to both. But it will be better to leave these things to their own place. See Book 2, Chapter 2. At present, it is necessary only to remember that man, at his first creation, was very different from all his posterity, who, deriving their origin from him after he was corrupted, received a hereditary taint. At first, every part of the soul was formed to rectitude. There was soundness of mind and freedom of will to choose the good, if anyone objects that it was placed, as it were, in a slippery position, because its power was weak, I answer that the degree conferred was sufficient to take away every excuse. For surely the deity could not be tied down to this condition, to make man such that he either could not or would not sin. Such a nature might have been more excellent. But to expostulate with God as if he had been bound to confer this nature on man is more than unjust seeing he had full right to determine how much or how little he would give. Why he did not sustain him by the virtue of perseverance is hidden in his counsel, 
It is ours to keep within the bounds of soberness. Man had received the power, if he had the will, but he had not the will which would have given the power. For this will would have been followed by perseverance. Still, after he had received so much, there was no excuse for his having spontaneously brought death upon himself. No necessity was laid upon God to give him more than that intermediate and even transient will, that out of man's fall he might extract materials for his own glory. (laughs) 